open your Bibles uh, one final time to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24. We'll begin reading in verse 36, and we'll read through the end of the chapter and the end of the book. Again, uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. We uh, conclude uh, today what we began over two years ago and have continued over the course of, I would suspect, around 70 uh, sermons, uh, preaching consecutively uh, through uh, this marvelous book. As I uh, mentioned at the beginning of this particular series, of this study, that uh, from the earliest days of my conversion, uh, as I attempted to come to grips with what the uh, Word of God said and what the implications of uh, the Lordship of Christ was for my life, I have wrestled with much, uh, particularly what Jesus says in this particular book. He says some things to us that are weighty, that, that continue even after 50 years of seeking to follow, seeking to walk with the Lord. They still challenge my heart. And so today... Uh, I believe that, that Luke brings to an appropriate conclusion that which he set out to do. If you'll remember, he said, I want to give you a, an orderly account uh, by way of uh, certain uh, types of investigation, of, of interviews, and uh, probably even uh, having access to some other types of, of written sources, whether they be actual Gospels or not. But he did a, a thorough investigation in giving it order in writing so that um, uh, one Theophilus may have certainty. Certainty is, is, a, is a, a wonderful biblical concept for the Christian life. That, that we may know that we know that we know, and that we may know that we know that we know for certain that, that which we know is absolutely true and absolutely reliable. In other words, you can have great confidence in something and yet it be what? A lie. It not be true. But I want you to have, and I believe Luke wants us to have, a certain type of confidence that what he has told us over the course of these 24 chapters, it is reliable, it is true, and ultimately, it is the life-changing testimony of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at one final scene that recounts for us the resurrection of our Lord and then His ascension from the earth after His resurrection to the right hand of the Father. For I assure you, he is there today, and He is ruling, and He is reigning, and thank God, He's interceding for His own there in the very corridors of heaven. So read with me, verse 36. And they were talking about these things. Jesus Himself st stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, 
Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is my, I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you uh, for your truth, for the testimony to uh, your accomplishment at the cross of Calvary, for the reality of of your resurrection, for uh, the hope that one day you shall return for us. Lord, I pray that uh, you indeed, through the ministries of your Spirit, would illuminate our minds, that you would give us uh, uh, a mind to understand and a heart and a will to obey. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. While we can have confidence... In all of the biblical accounts, all the books of the Bible, it seems that Luke, uh, since he is often referred to as a physician, that is, he has kind of a scientific orientation, that he has a, a great concern for accuracy, as we should as well. That fundamental to uh, the task of preaching the Word of God is that it accurately reflect, that it expound, that it explain the particular text that we have chosen. That is, it doesn't matter how cute or how catchy or how memorable a sermon is, if it fails the test of accuracy, it fails. It's not even a sermon, it's a, a talk. And so, we want to, to emphasize the, the accuracy of what Luke tells us. And we, as we communicate, we, as, as I've often said, we strive for clarity. We, we are not like uh, what seems to be the goal of many disciplines today as they communicate. We, they want to confuse the issue. Well, we seek clarity. And in all of those things, even a, a somewhat of a degree of simplicity, and again, being simplistic is incredibly dangerous. And simplistic explanations and understandings of the Word of God 
imperil souls. Uh, they're dangerous. But, but there is a, a very real sense that the gospel is rather straightforward and it is uh, quite simple. And so, again, it is uh, with all those things in mind that we come uh, to our concluding text uh, for the Gospel of Luke. And I will go ahead and, and tell you, it really provides the, the springboard for where we will be in, where we'll go next week. That is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts. And so uh, Luke uh, closes and then opens in continuity with that which uh, the apostles did in bearing witness to what they had seen and heard and experienced uh, through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in our final scene that's before us today that begin, begins in verse 36, Jesus, once again, on the, the day of his resurrection, later in the day, after uh, the women find the tomb open, after most likely appearing to the women and to Peter, after appearing to those uh, disciples uh, returning home to Emmaus, Jesus appears uh, to these disciples uh, where, they are, where they're staying, uh, there uh, in Jerusalem. And from, I think it's, if you count up in the Gospels, I think you'll find probably there's a record of 13 post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus, okay? Over this uh, uh, period of 40 days, I guess exclusive of uh, the Damascus Road experience with the Apostle Paul. But we have these various appearances of our Lord that give us a reliable witness, gives us great certainty that that which we claim, that that which we assert, that which we affirm, that which we confess, that which we defend, is rooted in reality, in the facts regarding the history of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, verse 36, the Emmaus uh, disciples uh, have returned. They're talking about their experience regarding Jesus. We're told that Jesus himself stood among them. And my, my concept is that they were in a room, locked off from the outside world, and that Jesus, in a, a way uh, that is beyond our explanation or understanding, supernaturally, transcended the, the barriers of, of time and space, namely walls, and manifested himself physically there in their midst. That, that Just that in itself would have been a shock. In other words, I, I, he didn't knock on the door and say, would you open the door for me? That he just appeared, and there he was in their midst, and he did not chastise them, he did not rebuke them, for their failures, which were colossal, which were monumental. But he says to them, peace to you. Uh, probably reflective of the, the old Jewish uh, custom and word shalom. Peace. I desire that you know, certainly within your heart and your mind, the sense of peace that I have come to establish, to guarantee uh, for you. And so we're told, even though Jesus offers to them this greeting, and 
You can believe that if Jesus greets you with peace, that his desire is what? Not the opposite. I'm, I, listen, I just said that. I'm, I'm really here to slap you around a little bit. No. He really desires that they would know peace. And yet, they were startled and, and frightened. And you see kind of a parallel there. They, they were startled. In other words, there was a suddenness. They were, they were shocked uh, by... Uh, the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had already been talking about this business of the resurrection, but they still hadn't gotten their mind all around what it meant that the tomb was empty, that Jesus had appeared, that Jesus had spoken with some of these folks. What, what are the implications? And so they're talking about this. They're trying to sort it out, and there he stands. And they're startled which goes to the abruptness of his appearance. And then they're frightened. Well, wait a minute. You know, we're, we're shocked. And, and now that we've got a minute to think about it, we're actually scared. That, that okay, what, how, is this going to, uh, how is this going to go down? And, and their first thought is they think that, the, that this was a spirit, which probably from their perspective wouldn't have really... Uh, been a, a very good thing for, for it to be, to be a, a spirit. And so Jesus begins to question them and ask them there in verse 38, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now we could probably wax long and eloquent about that, that kind of a, a doublet there, a couplet uh, there. And I, but I think we could probably say, that for the most part, our sense of trouble, our being troubled in spirit, comes from our doubts. That, that many times, uh, when we are shaken, and in a fallen world, you're going to be shaken. If, does everybody understand that? You will be shaken. But we need to remember the good news that we just sang about. That God is sovereign. Our Lord Jesus Christ rules and He reigns. And so that, that the reason they were frightened is, is, is they, there was doubt. That they were, they were troubled because they, they were doubting. And they were doubting because, I think we have to say, they, they really hadn't been paying attention all through their, their three and a half year of journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... The Lord purposes to resolve their trouble, their doubt, and their fear. Now, notice how he does that in, in, in verse 39. Not only see, as John would later reflect, that which our hands have touched and our eyes have seen, this is, a, this is real, this is real reality, this is not fiction, it's not a vision, it's not a dream, this is the real deal. And so Jesus invites them to look at him, the hands, the feet, presumably, look at the scars where they nailed my hands and feet to the, to the cross, then touch me. You may touch me. Now, sometimes people describe faith or trusting in Jesus Christ as something of a leap into the dark or a leap into the abyss but whether in this physical presence personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ or whether through the spirit 
and the Word itself, God never calls upon us to make a leap in the dark. He provides ample evidence for our certainty. Now certainly, these, these guys were privileged. Touch me. Feel me. See, see that, that, that I am indeed flesh and, and bones. That, that, that I, am, I am real. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a spirit. That I have been raised from the dead in a physical body. And so there seems to be a, I guess you'd say a negation that he wants to accomplish in this little uh, uh, episode here. First of all, he's not an angel. He, he's really the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he's not a, a spirit. He, he is real and he's physical. That, that they're not having some type of vision. Okay? That, that this, is, this is really uh, Jesus Christ, I will say it this way, in the flesh. It, it, is, it is a flesh that is very much like the flesh he had on the earth, but there are some distinctives, seemingly, of that flesh. So he's got a material body. It is different, but it's also similar. It stands in continuity uh, with uh, that old body. It, it, it's not spiritual. It is flesh and bones, but yet it does seem to have some capacities that are not normally given to what we think of as our flesh and blood makeup or flesh and bones makeup of being able to transcend time and space and even material uh, objects by going in and out of rooms. Interestingly enough, he's capable of, of eating. Again, I think a demonstration of, of his physicality that, that this is not, to, we're not to go into some type of, of Gnosticism that you know Jesus was, was immaterial and he was just uh, a, a spirit. And of course, uh, this body, like the body that we're promised one day, and uh, you know, in, in talking to kind of my peers, the, uh, the guys that have uh, made it to 64 and beyond, one thing that we're completely aware of is the reality of our mortality. Uh, that, uh, uh, you know, it, it's just a fact. That, that death is making its inroads upon all of us. And so one glorious thing about this body that seems to uh, be the, the, at least in type, like the body we will receive in our resurrection, guess what? No more aches and pains. What are aches and pains? They're a testimony to the reality of sin and death. They're, they're a testimony to the fallenness of the world. And that will be reversed in our resurrection, as demonstrated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're told this, he shows them this, and, and they're described as while they still disbelieved, for joy they were marveling. So, again, they're just, they're dumbfounded. They're, dumbfounded. they're overwhelmed. That, okay, just think about the week that they have lived. Jesus comes in, the crowds welcome him. Things get hot as they sit there in the temple day after day, and there's more animosity and more conflict. And then ultimately, uh, Jesus explains again what's about to happen. And then he is betrayed, he's arrested, he is condemned, he's crucified, he's placed in the tomb. And just mere hours later, he's standing among them. And 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 they that you know we talk sometimes about trying to get a drink from a fire hydrant. 
Well, that's what these guys are doing. They're, they're trying to take all of this in and, and sort out what, what, is all, what, are, what has happened, first of all, and then what are the implications for what has happened. They, they just are having trouble believing what they were seeing and what they were hearing. And so while they're still trying to sort it out, Jesus says, hey, you got anything to eat, guys? Now, again, I already mentioned one thing. I believe it was a demonstration of something, uh, something of the nature of this resurrected body. But I also think there was a second very important thing. And I think in the ancient world, and I think it's still that way to some extent in the modern world, but to sit down and eat a meal with somebody is at least a symbol of unity and fellowship. And Jesus wants them to know, we haven't been fractured. I, I am still your Lord, your Master, your Savior. And even though you have failed, I haven't. I haven't failed. And I'm here to assure you that my plan for you has not been interrupted. It has, has not been halted. But you're still going to be used in... Uh, the days ahead and so he takes and he eats the fish and then in verse 44 he begins to instruct the disciples possibly there, there's a bit of a, of a mild rebuke there in verse 44 uh, these are my words that I spoke to you in other words okay guys are we going to have to start at Jesus 101 again are we, are we going to have to start all the way from the beginning? I, I, think, I think the rebuke is, is, is quite uh, subtle. But I'm not going to give you new information. I'm going to say things to you that I have been saying to you for three years. And because you had your own ideas, because you weren't listening, because you had determined that you knew what God's plan was ultimately going to be, you did not get what I was telling you with great clarity. And so he says that, that they, uh, he calls upon them to reflect upon and remember these words. And we, we've looked at these as we've studied the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day and be raged. What could be more clear? That's pretty straightforward. And uh, later in the same chapter of Luke, he says, let these words sink in. I, pay attention. Guys, you didn't listen the first time. Let me tell you again. And then, chapter 18, there's a third prediction of his death. And Luke notes, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. And we're going to see in a moment that certainly while they were responsible to understand and to believe, there was also something that God was doing in terms of his own timetable uh, for them to fully grasp uh, all of the implications uh, related to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, he tells them that everything 
uh, that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And at that point, we're told that Jesus opens the disciples' minds. I, I think it's probably parallel to what John records in chapter 20, verse 22. When Jesus breathes on those disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, again, that's a bit enigmatic in, in that we know that the fullness of the Spirit doesn't come uh, until Pentecost, uh, but certainly it's something that foreshadows uh, the fullness of the work of the Spirit giving uh, understanding uh, to these uh, disciples. And, and so he opens their minds. They are regenerate. They are believing, but God gives to them in this moment a particular, a, a peculiar uh, understanding so they can make sense of all that's been said, all that's been done. They can, they can grasp the implications. It's, it's a unique uh, experience. You, you'll hear me say often when we get into the study of the book of Acts that this, that, or the other event is descriptive, not prescriptive. That is, it's accurately describing this is what's happened, but it is not necessarily prescribing that is what's normative in the life of the church, okay? And so this is descriptive, okay, of something that happened in the life of the disciples, but it's not necessarily prescriptive that, uh, you know, that, that Jesus goes around and says, okay, I'm going to open your minds and open your minds and open your minds. In the work of regeneration and the filling of the Spirit at our regeneration, much of this is now accomplished. Now that doesn't mean it's not to say that we don't grow in our understanding of the work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that we don't even have, oh my goodness, I've never seen that before. I told you last week about what one of our young men said, and it was very much a, wow, aha, that's great. That's great. We, we will constantly, until we see Jesus and we have that ultimate, final, consummate aha, we should be having some aha moments as the, the richness of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, coalesce uh, in our, our lives. But it does remind us of this. It reminds us of our dependence. Jesus told those disciples, recorded in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Now, Paul's having a real problem with the pride in the Corinthian church. that, that They thought they had mastered both life and doctrine and everything else. He said, listen, if you have any grasp, any understanding of the things of God, you've received it as a gift. And so... It's real easy for people like me, people like you, for us to get real proud of what we know. Let me tell you this. I know this about you because it's true of me. The old saying, I think I used it last week, that our, our reach exceeds our grasp. We know plenty, but we obey a lot less than we know. Or at least we, have, we perfect in our obedience a lot less than we know and so we should if we know anything 
It is because God first worked in our heart in regeneration and His Spirit continues to bear witness with our spirit, giving us this insight, giving this ongoing illumination. And folks, there's, there's a profound distinction between what theologians will refer to as revelation, that's complete, okay, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the completion of the canon. But we continue to study, praying that the Spirit would continue to give us insight, understanding, give us the heart to obey all of the implications of the Word of God. And so Jesus explains to them, after opening their minds to understand the Scriptures, the Old Testament, to understand how the Old Testament had presented the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've done this several times in the last uh, few weeks. But it, Jesus had already said everything that was written, law and the prophets and Psalms, that must be uh, fulfilled. And then he gives them the ability to understand these things, to understand that he was the one whose heel would be bruised and he would crush the head of the serpent, that he would be the stone the builders rejected and now he's become the cornerstone. He would be the one uh, forsaken, uh, according to the Psalm, Psalm 22. He would be the anointed one that's cut off, according to Daniel 9:26. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the one that they shall look on, whom they pierced in Zechariah 12:10. He's the shepherd who shall be struck and the sheep shall be scattered in Zechariah 13:7. He is the one the psalmist said. And Peter quotes it on the day of Pentecost. He's the one whose soul will not be abandoned to Sheol. And he is the one who will not suffer decay. Let me tell you something. I've been impressed with some of the things that funeral home directors, morticians, and all this do when people die to make them look like they're just asleep. But let me tell you something. That body's still going to corrupt one day. The only way to stop corruption is to raise one from the dead and the corruption of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, it ceased and desisted because he was raised from the dead. So, in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And so, as Jesus had instructed them that he was going to go, as it had been determined, he, was, he would, had entered the realm and taken this body, according to Hebrews 10, to fulfill all that was written of him in the scrolls. He came to do uh, the Father's will. He came to go into Jerusalem on that last week to accomplish our redemption. He came into our realm. Paul would explain as the second Adam to obey God and even suffer uh, the curse, the consequence of Adam's sin and rebellion. He came to fulfill all righteousness. That is, everything that God demands of you and I has been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. As great as it is, and it's a great thing to think about my sin being forgiven because my sins are great. Okay, They're many. They're weighty. They're heavy. But the corollary that I have the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is maybe even a greater comfort. Because it's not enough just to be not guilty. If we would see the Lord Jesus Christ, if we would uh, uh, live with him, him, him in heaven forever, we must be righteous. And Jesus came and performed the deeds that God demanded 
for our righteousness. He obeyed the law, and he suffered its penalty in our place. As our substitute, propitiating the wrath of God, expiating our guilt, atoned for our sins, securing our forgiveness. And in that, he defeated death. The writer of Hebrews speaks of Jesus tasting death for everyone. He partakes of this uh, of, of our flesh and blood. The writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 3.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of our people. He entered the realm to become the effective, the final high priest on our behalf. He is the sacrifice and he is the high priest. And now, I think I'm right when I say this, that heaven rejoices as, as our interceder. He reminds the courts of heaven that our sins have been atoned for by His once and for all sacrifice at the cross of Calvary. And in His resurrection, sin's claim of, on us, namely by virtue of death, has been defeated. And so, all of these things, Jesus instructed them on. And as he continues, as they, as they understand these things and who Jesus is and what he came to do, Jesus begins to outline, beginning in verse 47, their assignment. This is all true. In other words, this is not the disciples going out for the balance of their days. Guys, hey folks, we knew this guy. His name was Jesus. He was cool. I mean, he was a teacher that you wouldn't believe. And, you know, he ran afoul of, of, of all the yahoos in Jerusalem, and they killed him. And, and really, we believe he was raised from the dead. and We don't really know what to do about it. Now, Jesus said, this is what you're going to do about what I have done. Notice there in verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. On the basis of who I am and what I've done, on the basis of my power and authority, I charge you, I command you to Caruso, to go and proclaim, to stand and give a bold witness to who I am and what I have done. You're to, to go and you're to announce all of this and this, this word caruso that's used for proclaim is related to a word kerygma. Kerygma is basically the content of the gospel. It is the testimony to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to caruso is to detail, is to affirm, is to explain the kerygma, namely that which God has done for us through His, Lord, through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is to announce the good news and to call everyone to repentance by the preaching, as Paul would describe in Acts 20, of the whole counsel of God. We preach from Genesis to Revelation. One thing that's, that's I think, very unpopular, uh, probably for the course of my lifetime, and, and it's a failure to understand, but this was championed, I think it maybe next to justification by faith, may have been the genius of Luther. Certainly Spurgeon picked it up. But it's the distinction and the necessity of the law and the gospel. 
If you cannot convince an individual that they are lost and they are desperately in need of a Savior and they are about to suffer the wrath of God. In fact, as they listen to you, they are under His condemnation. They are under the wrath of God and they must not insist, well, you know, I'd really like it if you'd repent. No, listen. On the authority of God Himself, I command you, it is of necessity to repent. And right there is offensive enough for anybody, for everybody to be, to be mad. Now think of it for just a moment. Now I'm old enough to remember what's called a filling station or a service station. We call them convenience stores now. But there was a time that you would pull in a place to get gas, you'd pull across a little hose, and it would ring a little bell, and a little guy would come out and say, fill her up. And you'd say, no, I'm lost. Can you tell me how to get to... Now now we do Google, and then, or Google Maps, and then we lose our cell phone service and we get lost anyway. And, and nobody has any sense of where you are or where you're going. So you're just really messed up. But why is the cliche true, men and women, that we don't ask for directions? Right? Because to ask for directions is to do what? Men, I'm lost. Men, I'm wrong. I took a wrong turn. I was, oh, I know the way. Be, be quiet. I got this. Don't say another word. Why are y'all laughing? But when you pull into the filling station and the bell rings and you have to crank down the window over here, some of you know what I'm talking about. Sir, can you tell me how to get, I'm lost. Can you tell me how to, boy, you got to humble yourself. People don't want to change direction. People do not want to admit they're wrong. Again, in our world, one of the as much as there's so much dangerous junk in the world, one of the most junkiest dangers is that we must affirm and agree and celebrate every stupid thing that every individual wants to do. Instead of what? You must repent. It's not my opinion. Listen. You're not going to stand before me and give an account. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about offending me. Don't worry about making me mad. I'm not really worried about making you mad at the end of the day. But you need to repent. You must have a change of mind and a change of heart. You must change your direction. Now, so many implications to repentance. We're going to see it time and time again in the book of Acts. I don't think I've got to get real deep into it today. But fundamentally, change of direction. I am walking with and toward sin, and I turn and walk with and toward God. Okay, faith, uh, repentance toward God, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, you can't repent without believing, you can't believe without repenting. And it's all, comes back to why nobody likes me very much, but it's true. Repentance and faith are all of divine grace. It is all of God's work. God grants to you a heart of flesh replacing the heart of stone. He grants to you a birth from above, a new birth. He regenerates you so that your dead heart, mind, and will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and belief. And you say, well, that's a little, one of those little fine details that you just like to fuss about. Well, let me tell you something. If you don't get the fine detail of the gospel and the appropriate response to the gospel right, you'll go out and mess up a whole bunch of people. And quite honestly, I think the Southern Baptist Convention is living testimony to that.
Okay? Because that's what we've done. We've failed to understand how it is that conversion works and what the gospel is and how it applies and what the appropriate response is. And we've messed a lot of people up for a lot of time. So, okay. Law and gospel. The law demands. Now see, some of you guys, and I know you, <clears throat> see, every, I believe every demand that the Bible makes of you, of me, is law. Love your wives. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. I'm married to a beautiful woman. I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I got you. I'm good. You hadn't thought about it. Okay? You hadn't thought about it very much. Let me tell you something. You are guilty of not loving your wife perfectly. Remember, the standard is perfection. Not love her a lot. Not love her more than anybody. Love her more than life itself. But you go down the list of anything that the Word of God demands of you. And when you raise it to the level of perfection, the level of God's standard, you're guilty. Which tells me what? I need a Savior. I need a Savior. But let me tell you what else the law does. I believe this. The law tells me that I have a Savior. Because it does provide some dipstick into my heart to check my oil level. And hopefully my oil reservoir, so to speak, is rising. That as I come to understand God's grace and being fret set free from the guilt of the law, from the demands of the law, having everything that the law demands met in the person and work of Jesus Christ, because the law has now been written upon my heart, I am free to obey Him. Tragically, not perfectly. But yet, everything that God demands has been met in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the law, it condemns me, certainly, surely. But it also, at times, used appropriately. Seems like Paul says something about that too. It gives me some measure of encouragement that God has and is effectively working in me. And so, repentance for forgiveness, universally, worldwide, because of my authority, because of my power, because of my accomplishment, preach the necessity of repentance. Preach this whole counsel. Preach the law. Preach the gospel. Point out the necessity of a Savior, the reality of the guilt of all men. And there's a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. Now, not but a few weeks that football season will begin. Now, I can hear it now. Did you see blah, 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 yesterday, yesterday, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Got to talk about it. Got to talk about it. Because you witnessed it, right? You, you wasted a whole Saturday. You know, you got to watch game day. You got to watch SEC game day. You got... But you got to talk about it. Jesus says this. You've seen me. You've heard me. And really you've had a unique experience with me. You're witnesses and you got to talk about it. Now, you, you, you got, it's not just again, we knew this neat guy Jesus and a lot of cool things happen. But we got to talk about the implications of 
the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He accomplished that which is necessary for salvation, and we must call upon you on the basis of who He is and what He's done to repent. As the disciples would later say when threatened by the Jewish leaders, we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. That, that they were so changed by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly the resurrection, they, could, they just couldn't stop talking about it. And so, we should think along those same lines. We have something to say. As an old song, you say, we have a story to tell to the nations. A story of truth and life. Fourth thing, final thing. Jesus ascends. We're going to come back to this next week. He goes away from the disciples. He goes out to Bethany. He blesses uh, those disciples. Again, not a rebuke, but a blessing. I'm going to be with you. I, I, I've given you power. I've given you a message uh, to preach. They see Jesus for that final time in that particular format. And they worship Him. Now, I've, I've told you, I don't know how many dozens of times over all these years, that my paradigm for worship is Isaiah 6. Isaiah encounters uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in the temple. Woe is me, wretched man that I am. He will deliver me, all this, all this stuff. And he worships God. And I believe that any genuine encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ ends in worship. One of the things that was really definitive in kind of reworking our worship service and kind of singing, I mean, it's not everything about worship and, and, and what we're doing right here, right in this moment is worship, but singing is a congregational way for us to say we have encountered through the proclaimed Word of God, the risen Son of God, and we can't help but speak in song about what we have seen and what we've heard. Right? And so we give you that opportunity. It is a planned opportunity to worship, to, to proclaim, to, to celebrate these realities, to encounter, to understand the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be compelled to worship. So, Let's do some quick takeaways. First of all, I would, I would add to that, if there's no desire to worship, then there's really probably, well, I wouldn't even say probably, but there's been no encounter. Oh, you may have sat through church. may have done a lot of things. But you haven't encountered the Lord Jesus Christ through Word and Spirit. Then, Jesus' death was the effective and accepted sacrifice as demonstrated in being raised from the dead. It is an essential reality that we must proclaim. We cannot compromise. It's one of those things we dig our heels in that no, it wasn't some kind of vision. It wasn't some kind of hallucination. It wasn't spiritual. It wasn't just made up. But Jesus really did rise from the dead. I would add to that, it's a fool's errand to try to de deny or disprove that. Because He has been raised, it is certain that He is Lord, Savior, Judge, and He will be one of the other for all men. He will be either Savior or Judge. Take your pick. He, is now, he has now ascended. He intercedes. That's great good news. And folks, make no mistake about it, as, as insane, and I mean insane, as I think things are now. And that's say, I, I, I get pretty worked up about them, actually. 
Whatever it means, it does not mean that our Lord Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right now. And that all of these things, no matter how crazy they are, even, even the, the, the wicked have been created for God's own purposes. And so, we trust. Why are you troubled? Because you doubt. God has His plan and He is working it out. And we still live in light of this charge to proclaim this truth and all of His corollaries and most necessarily the necessity of repentance, of turning from sin, turning to Christ. And so with all of these things, Luke ends his orderly account. He prepares us, so to speak, for the next orderly account. But I believe he's proven that we can be certain that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He is the Son of Man, and He is uniquely, He is singularly, the only Savior for this world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for it is truth without any mixture of error. It is powerful. And Lord, its power is demonstrated so often in our lives as it, because it is sharper than a two-edged sword. Even in those who seek to follow after You, who believe, uh, it divides our joints and our marrows. Lord, uh, I pray that you would continue to provoke in us that ongoing repentance and even a continuing faith that we may live with confidence, oh, that our sins are forgiven. And Lord, on the basis of who you are, what you've done, that we would proclaim not only the necessity of repentance, but also the promise, the, 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 the real joy, of the, the promise of eternal life on the other side of genuine repentance. I pray that you would work among us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.